Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from An Adventure written by Elizabeth Morrison and published in 1911. The book explores a tourist visit to the Versailles Palace in 1901. It brought back memories of my own visit there, and I really enjoyed reading this story. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thanks to the listeners who have contacted me during the week. I noticed that on the podcasting platform, Podcast Addict, there were several listeners that have left me a review. Thank you to CGB33, also to D. Floyd, and... To MDJ. I really appreciate the reviews that you all left me and apologize for the delay in thanking you. Thanks to Liam J for your review on Castbox. Ava May, I appreciate your kind review on Podbean. And Nicola, thank you for your message on Instagram. I am actually from Melbourne, but I do think Moana Beach is a beautiful location with lovely sunsets. And for all the anchor supporters and Patreons, 
I thank you for continuing to support the show financially. If you do appreciate the podcast, a lovely way to say thank you is to leave a five-star review in iTunes or your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. An Adventure Chapter 1 Visits to the Petty Trianon Miss Morrison's Account of the First Visit to the Petty Trianon August 1901 After some days of sightseeing in Paris, to which we were almost strangers, on an August afternoon, 1901, Miss Lamont and I went to Versailles. We had very hazy ideas as to where it was or what there was to be seen. Both of us thought it might prove to be a dull expedition. We went by train and walked through the rooms and galleries of the palace with interest. Though we constantly regretted our inability through ignorance, to feel properly the charm of the place. My knowledge of French history was limited to the very little I had learnt in the schoolroom, historic novels, and the first volume of Justin McCarthy's French Revolution. Over thirty years before my brother had written a prize poem on Marie Antoinette, for whom at the time I had felt much enthusiasm. But the German occupation was chiefly in our minds, and Miss Lamont and I thought and spoke of it several times. We sat down in the salle de glace, where a very sweet air was blowing in at the open windows, over the flower beds below, and finding that there was time to spare, I suggested going to the Petit Trianon. My sole knowledge of it was from a magazine article read as a girl, from which I received a general impression that it was a farmhouse where the Queen had amused herself. Looking in the Baddeker's map, we saw the sort of direction and that there were two Trianons, and set off. By not asking the way we went an unnecessarily long way round, by the great flights of steps from the fountains, and down the central avenue, as far as the head of the long pond. The weather had been very hot all week, but on this day, the sky was a little overcast, and the sun shaded. There was a lively wind blowing, and the woods were looking their best, and we both felt particularly vigorous. It was a most enjoyable walk. 
after reaching the beginning of the long water, and we struck away to the right down woodland glade until we came obliquely to the other water, close to the building, and which we rightly concluded to be the Grand Trianon. We passed it on our left hand, and came up a broad green drive perfectly deserted. If we had followed it, we should not have come immediately to the Petit Trianon, but not knowing its position, we crossed the drive and went up a lane in front of us. I was surprised that Miss Lamont did not ask the way from a woman who was shaking a white cloth out of the window of a building at the corner of the lane, but followed supposing that she knew where she was going to. Talking about England and mutual acquaintances there, we went up the lane and then made a sharp turn to the right, past some buildings. We looked in at an open doorway and saw the end of a carved staircase, but as no one was about, we did not like to go in. There were three paths in front of us, and as we saw two men, a little ahead on the centre one, we followed it, and asked them the way. Afterwards, we spoke of them as gardeners, because we remembered a wheelbarrow of some kind, close by, and the look of a pointed spade but they were really very dignified officials, dressed in long greyish-green coats, with small three-cornered hats, and they directed us straight on. We walked briskly, talking as before, but from the moment we left the lane, an extraordinary depression had come over me, which, in spite of every effort to shake off, steadily deepened. There seemed to be absolutely no reason for it. I was not at all tired, and was becoming more interested in my surroundings. I was anxious that my companion should not discover the sudden gloom upon my spirits which became quite overpowering on reaching the points where the path ended, being crossed by another, right and left. In front of us was a wood within which, and overshadowed by trees, was a light garden kiosk, circular, and like a small bandstand by which a man was sitting, there was no green sward, but the ground was covered with rough grass and dead leaves as in a wood. The place was so shut in that we could not see beyond it. Everything suddenly looked unnatural, therefore unpleasant. Even the trees being the building 
seemed to have become flat and lifeless, like a wood worked in tapestry. There were no effects of light and shade, and no wind stirred the trees. It was all intensely still. The man sitting close to the kiosk, who had on a cloak and a large shady hat, turned his head and looked at us. That was the culmination of my peculiar sensations, and I felt a moment of genuine alarm. The man's face was most repulsive, its expression odious. His complexion was very dark and rough. I said to Miss Lamont, which is our way, but thought nothing will induce me to go left. It was a great relief at the moment to hear someone running up to us in breathless haste. Connecting the sound with the gardeners, I turned and ascertained that there was no one on the paths, either to the side or behind. But at almost the same moment, I suddenly perceived another man, quite close to us, and behind and rather to the left hand, who had apparently just come either over or through the rock that shut out the view of the junction of the paths. The suddenness of his appearance was something of a shock. The second man was distinctly a gentleman. He was tall, with large dark eyes, and had crisp curling black hair under the same large sombrero hat. He was handsome, and the effect of the hair was to make him look like an old picture. His face was glowing red as through great exertion, as though he had come a long way. At first I thought he was sunburnt, but a second look satisfied me that the colour was from heat, not sunburning. He had on a dark cloak, wrapped across him like a scarf, one end flying out of his prodigious hurry. He looked greatly excited as he called out to us, Madame, Madame, it is not your fault per passenger, then waved his arm and said with great animation, Parisi, Churches Le Maison. I was so surprised at his eagerness that I looked up at him again, and to this he responded with a little backward movement and a most peculiar smile. Though I could not follow all he said, it was clear that he was determined that we should go to the right and not to the left. As this fell in with my own wish, I went instantly towards a little bridge on the right, 
and turning my head to join Miss Lamont in thanking him, found, to my surprise, that he was not there. But the running began again, and from the sound it was close beside us. Silently we passed over the small rustic bridge, which crossed a tiny ravine, so close to us when on the bridge that we could have touched it with our right hands. A thread-like cascade fell from a height down a green pretty bank where ferns grew between stones, where the little trickle of water went to I did not see, but it gave me the impression that we were near other water though I saw none. Beyond the little bridge our pathway led under trees. It skirted a narrow meadow of long grass, bounded on the further side by trees, and very much overshadowed by trees growing in it. This gave the whole place a sombre look, suggestive of dampness, and shut out the view of the house until we were close to it. The house was a square, solidly built, small country house, quite different from what I expected. The long windows looking north into the English garden, where we were, were shuttered, there was a terrace round the north and west sides of the house, and on the rough grass, which grew quite up to the terrace, and with her back to it, a lady was sitting, holding out a paper, as though to look at it from arm's length. I supposed her to be sketching, and to have brought her own camp stall, it seemed as though she must be making a study of trees, for they grew close in front of her, and there seemed to be nothing else to sketch. She saw us, and when we passed close by on her left hand, she turned and looked full at us. It was not a young face, and though rather pretty, it did not attract me. She had on a shady white hat, perched on a good deal of fair hair, that fluffed round her forehead. Her light summer dress was arranged on her shoulders, in handkerchief fashion and there was a little line of either green or gold near the edge of the handkerchief, which showed me that it was over, not tucked in to her bodice, but it was cut low. Her dress was long-waisted, with a good deal of fullness in the skirt, which seemed to be short, I thought she was a tourist, but that her dress was old-fashioned and rather unusual. I looked straight at her, 
but some indescribable feeling made me turn away, annoyed at her being there. We went up the steps onto the terrace, my impression being that they led up direct from the English garden, but I was beginning to feel as though we were walking in a dream. The stillness and depressiveness were so unnatural. Again, I saw the lady, this time from behind, and noticed that her fichu was pale green. It was rather a relief to me that Miss Lamont did not propose to ask her whether we could enter the house from that side. We crossed the terrace to the southwest corner and looked over into the Cor de Honor and then turned back and seeing that one of the long windows overlooking the French garden was unshuttered. We were going towards it then when we were interrupted. The terrace was prolonged at right angles in front of what seemed to be a second house. The door of it suddenly opened and a young man stepped out onto the terrace, banging the door behind him. He had the jaunty manner of a footman, but no livery, and called to us, saying that the way into the house was by the corps d'honneur, and offered to show us the way round. He looked inquisitively amused as he walked by us down the French garden till we came to the entrance into the front drive. We came out sufficiently near the first lane we had been in to make me wonder why the garden officials had not directed us back instead of telling us to go forward. When we were in the front entrance hall, we were kept waiting for the arrival of Merry French Wedding Party. They walked arm in arm in a long procession round the rooms, and we were at the back, too far off from the guide to hear much of his story. We were very much interested and felt quite lively again. Coming out of the Corps d'Honneur, we took a little carriage which was standing there and drove back to the hotel in Versailles, where we had tea. But we were neither of us inclined to talk and did not mention any of the events of the afternoon. After tea, we walked back to the station, looking on the way for the tennis court. On the way back to Paris, the setting sun at last burnt out from under the clouds, bathing the distant Versailles woods in glowing light. Valerian standing out in front a mass of deep purple. Again and again, the thought returns. Was Marie Antoinette really much a Trianon? And did she see it for the last time 
long before the fatal drive to Paris, accompanied by the mob. For a whole week, we never alluded to that afternoon, nor did I think about it until I began writing a descriptive letter of our expeditions of the week before. As the scenes came back one by one, the same sensation of dreamy, unnatural oppression came over me so strongly that I stopped writing and said to Miss Lamont, Do you think that the petty Trianon is haunted? Her answer was prompt. Yes, I do. I asked her where she felt it, and she said, in the garden where we met the two men, but not only there. She then described her feeling of depression and anxiety, which began at the same point as it did with me, and how she tried not to let me know it. Talking it over, we fully realised for the first time the theatrical appearance of the man who spoke to us, the inappropriateness of the wrapped cloak on a warm summer afternoon, the unaccountableness of his coming and going, the excited running which seemed to begin and end close to us, and yet always out of sight, and the extreme earnestness with which he desired us to go one way and not another. I said that the thought had crossed my mind that the two men were going to fight a duel and that they were waiting until we were gone. Miss Lamont owned to having disliked the thought of passing the man of the kiosk. We did not speak again of the incident during my stay in Paris, though we visited the concierge prisons and the tombs of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette at Saint-Denis, where all was clear and fresh and natural. Three months later, Miss Lamont came to stay with me, and on Sunday, November 10th, 1901, we returned to the subject, and I said, If we had known that a lady was sitting so near us sketching it, would have made all the difference, for we should have asked the way. She replied that she had seen no lady. I reminded her of the person sitting under the terrace, but Miss Lamont declared that there was no one there. I exclaimed that it was impossible, that she should not have seen the individual, for we were walking side by side and went straight up to her, past her and looked down upon her from the terrace. It was inconceivable to us both that she should not have seen the lady, but the fact was clear that Miss Lamont had not done so. 
though we had both been rather on the lookout for someone who would reassure us as to whether we were trespassing or not. Finding that we had a new element of mystery and doubting how far we had seen any of the same things, we resolved to write down independent accounts of our expedition to Trianon, read up its history and make every inquiry about the place. Miss Lamont returned to her school that same evening and two days later I received from her a very interesting letter giving the results of her first inquiries. Miss Lamont's account of her first visit to the Petit Trianon in 1901, August 1901. In the summer of 1900, I stayed in Paris for the first time, and in the course of that summer, took a flat and furnished it, intending to place a French lady there in charge of my elder schoolgirls. Paris was quite new to me, and beyond seeing the picture in the galleries and one or two churches, I made no expeditions except to shops, for the exhibition of 1900 was going on, and all my free time was spent in seeing it with my French friends. The next summer, however, 1901, when after several months and at my school in England, I came back to Paris, it was to take the first opportunity possible of having a visitor to stay there and I asked Miss Morrison to come with me. Miss Morrison suggested our seeing the historic part of Paris in something like chronological order, and I look forward to seeing it practically for the first time with her. We decided to go to Versailles one day, though rather reluctantly, as we felt it was diverging from our plan to go there too soon. I did not know what to expect, as my ignorance of the place and its significance was extreme. So we looked up general directions in Baddeker and trusted to finding our way at the time. After spending some time in the palace, we went down by the terrace and struck to the right to find the Petit Trianon. We walked for some distance down a wooded alley and then came upon the buildings of the Grand Trianon, before which we did not delay. We went on in the direction of the Petit Trianon but just before reaching what we knew afterwards to be the main entrance, I saw a gate leading to a path cut deep below the level of the ground above, and as the way was open and had the look of an entrance that was used, I said 
Shall we try this path? It must lead to the house, and we followed it. To our right, we saw some farm buildings, looking empty and deserted. Implements, among others a plough, were lying about. We looked in, but saw no one. The impression was saddening, but it was not until we reached the crest of the rising ground, where there was a garden that I began to feel as if we had lost our way, and as if something was wrong. There were two men there in official dress, greenish in colour, with something in their hands, it might have been a staff. A wheelbarrow and some other items were seen nearby. They told us in answer to my inquiry to go straight on. I remember repeating my question because they answered in a seemingly casual and mechanical way, but only got the same answer in the same manner. As we were standing there, I saw to the right of us a detached, solidly built cottage, with stone steps at the door. A woman and a girl were standing at the doorway, and I particularly noticed their unusual dress. Both wore white handkerchiefs, tucked into the bodies and the girl's dress, though she looked thirteen or fourteen only, was down to her ankles. The woman was passing a jug to the girl, who wore a close white cap, Following the directions of the two men, we walked on, but the path pointed out to us seemed to lead away from where we imagined the petty Trianon to be, and there was a feeling of depression and loneliness about the place. I began to feel as if I were walking in my sleep. The heavy dreaminess was oppressive. At last we came upon a path crossing ours and saw in front of us a building consisting of some columns roofed in and set back in the trees. Seated on the steps was a man with a heavy black cloak round his shoulders and wearing a slouch hat. At that moment, the eerie feeling which had begun in the garden culminated in a definite impression of something uncanny and fear-inspiring. The man slowly turned his face, which was marked by smallpox. His complexion was very dark. The expression was very evil and yet unseeing and though I did not feel that he was looking particularly at us, I felt a repugnance to going past him, but I did not wish to show the feeling, which I thought was meaningless, and we talked about the best way to turn, and decided to go right. Suddenly, 
we heard a man running behind us. He shouted, Madame, Madame. And when I turned, he said in an accent that seemed to me unusual that our way lay in another direction. He then made a gesture, adding Parisi, Cherches, Le Maison. Though we were surprised to be addressed, we were glad of the direction and thanked him. The man ran off with a curious smile on his face. The running ceased as abruptly as it had begun, not far from where we stood. I remember that the man was young-looking, with a florid complexion and rather long dark hair. I do not remember the dress, except that the material was dark and heavy and that the man wore buckled shoes. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it and are feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, you're always welcome to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you a new episode very soon. Good night.